Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to the No One Fights Alone podcast, where we honor the men and women of our nation's first responder community by having difficult conversations about the challenges they face to ensure no one fights alone. So, Brad, I know uh, you just met our guest just a few minutes ago, uh, but I've been talking to you for a couple of weeks about it and some of the cool things that he's been doing in Arizona, and uh, I'm I'm so glad that we get to have him on the podcast today. Well, I'm fascinated to have a conversation and and uh, see where we go. It's uh, it's been really interesting to prepare for this a little bit and see see where we end up. Well, there's always Victor's always doing about ten different things. So instead of, you know, one solid resource that we come with normally, we can get about 10 in, in one hour episode. So the Renaissance man from Phoenix, yeah, Arizona. Absolutely. Well, welcome, Victor. Thank you. Very good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you found yourself in this space and then, you know, how you ended up doing what you're doing today, which is some really cool, awesome stuff for the, the first responders and not only the first responders, but the civilian, you know, population of Arizona as well. Sure. Um, just to go back into my past a little bit, uh, let me just say this. Uh, the, probably the most important part of my life is I've got a beautiful family. I've got four children and a wonderful wife uh, that I've had of 30 years that all give me all kinds of support and love that get me to allow, help me to work at a, at a high level, I would say, right? Uh, my background is is that uh, I worked Department of Corrections for about a year in a special management unit that was uh, basically looked like Pelican Bay here in Arizona. I uh, did that for about a year with the sole intention of uh, becoming a police officer. And uh, I was hired in 1990 um, by the Phoenix Police Department and um, had a beautiful, wonderful career of 25 years. And as they say now, I'm retired, rehired. As I, I do many things, uh, one thing you learn in law enforcement is that you get a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, and you can really branch out and do all kinds of different things. Yeah. No, I think it's important. I don't think enough people, when they come on and share their story, start with something about how important family is. I love that. And the and the retiring to something. I hear that in your voice. You're not retiring from something. You're retiring into something. Such a great concept. Yeah, I think somebody uh, very wise, a lot wiser than myself, said, do something that you love, that you're passionate about. It'll never be work. And I truly feel that way now, more so than when I was in law enforcement, right? We're kind of running and gunning in that that environment, and it's uh, it's a little crazy and, you know, discombobulated and and those types of things. But I feel like uh, real, real purpose here, and uh, I absolutely love it. So did you know that you were going to go into the behavioral health field? Like, the, I mean, 10 years before you retired, were you like, you know, I think I want to do something mental health wise? Um, yes and no. I would say uh, in my last 10 years of law enforcement, um, I gravitated to the employee assistant unit. And uh, that, that got me to the point of going out on critical incidents. Uh, I remember one particular year, about 35 critical incidents in a year. Uh, working with officers and stuff. And I just, because I love people, uh, really felt um, attracted to that position and that role uh, because uh, I felt like with some of my background, some of my past, and some of the things I had been through, I could really help. Um, and that that was a little bit of the, uh, the, the draw toward it. But uh, truthfully, the draw came from family. I had a son that was about 13, 14 years old. Um, shout out to my son, Ian. Uh, but he, uh, 
he started having some resiliency problems at a very, very early age. And um, with three other kids ahead of him, I didn't really know what it was. I just knew it was mental health. And I thought, man, I've, I've got to figure this out because as a first time ever as a father, I had no idea how to, how to lead my children, right? And so I, uh, I knew it was mental health, and I thought, i got to finish my degree. i got to figure this out. So I started taking some mental health classes, uh, finished my bachelor's. And then uh, as things kind of progressed with him, I, I knew I had to take a deep dive. And that's when I uh, enrolled into a uh, clinical mental health counseling program. It was a master's program. And, uh, you know, I just got to say that as I went through that program and learned stuff, I brought it home every day and just kind of helped him journey through. And I uh, really just kind of taught, you know, my kids, taught my wife, and we all just kind of had a little bit, I think, easier journey knowing some of the stuff that we knew as he kind of went through some of the stuff that he went through with depression, anxiety, and eventually some suicidal thoughts and uh, attempts. Well, and that's the thing is that this is something that's become way more prevalent over the last, you know, especially over the last three years, you know, mental health wise, but it's, it's always been there, but seems to be somewhat ignored. Right. And so it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, you had, you got this start here and then you took it to another level with it. Cause I mean, you now are uh, a crucial part of this system from both the VA, the first responders and others. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think looking back, uh, I remember having the thoughts and feelings when he was having some of these, uh, these issues, I thought, I'm not going to be that father, I'm not going to be that statistic, I got to do everything in my power to make sure this kid stays alive. You know, that was my job as a father, just to make sure that like this kid makes it right, Mm -hmm. that he gets through this process. And he, uh, he, he turns out to be everything that he wants to be and more. You know, so I figured that uh, he didn't have much will to live back then, but uh, we were going to we're going to help that will and push him forward and lift him up and and guide him and and those kinds of things. So, I, uh, you know, I sit here today just very thankful for the journey that I've been part of. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I want to jump back a little bit into some of your own personal struggles that you've gone through. I've told Brad about it, but I don't think Brad knows much. There is a documentary about Victor, correct? That's correct. It's called evil good. Okay. And so what is this documentary about exactly? I know I've seen it. So, I mean, I, I'm trying to give the, the little, uh, marketing point to the movie. Sure. You know, um, I could say many things about what the documentary is about, but I, I would probably first say that it is a story about evil and good. And there was a part of my, my, my family, uh, with brothers and sisters that just wasn't so good and me being part of law enforcement that I was hopefully, you know, representing the good. And it was, it's, a, the, it's a movie kind of a clash of those two evils that involves uh, drugs and so on and so forth. But um, I think in the middle of the movie, too, it's really a journey of forgiveness. Um, it's, uh, it's looking at a situation where family betrays you and having that thought process of, can I, can I live with this? Can I forgive somebody? Can I journey through this? Do I need to have a conversation, right? And, and it, it's real because I think a lot of times in our lives, you know, we've seen the movies where it's like, oh, or you've seen the news show or the TV where someone kills somebody's family. It's like, oh, I forgive them and, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, if we're looking at it, you know, for real, uh, you know, if it's your own family and they've tried to hurt you, they've tried to kill you and they've, they've tried to put some destruction on you, 
can you really make that gap and have that process, an honest process to where you can walk away and go, I'm okay. They're okay. And maybe they were sick, but you know, I'm not going to hold this grudge and let it ruin my life and, and take me to a, a place I don't want to be. So I find that, I find that fascinating, uh, having already gone down the road a little bit myself of, of, uh, an administrative betrayal to the level of having some of my closest friends walk away, uh, from me. And that's not the end of my story. The end of my story being processing that and actually, you know, seeking forgiveness from that because I love, I love that concept. It's so elusive. Uh, but once you've actually tackled that and say, this is who I want to be, those are just, those are very difficult journeys because we want to hang on to that resentment and that, uh, that hurt and pain, uh, as it were. So I love the concept of, of that documentary. I look forward to watching it. I haven't seen it yet. I have to send you the link. I'd love to see it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what it's supposed to be about. I think that's, I mean, is, is what went on and we don't want to give away too much of it, but is what went on during that, is that what drove you to public safety? No, uh, really the story, uh, that the documentary is about is, uh, originates from about 2001 when I've been a law enforcement uh, officer for about 10 years. And, um, it, it really started with, um, having somebody come to my house, uh, to kill me. And uh, me kind of surprising the person and the person running off. And at the time, not really knowing what that was all about, only to find out a few days later that there was uh, a contract for my life. And um, it was about a two-year process of trying to figure out who, where, what, when, and why. And um, that type of thing. And I'll just say that over like the two-year process of this happening... Um, there was a couple attempts on my life, um, not just at home, but as well as work. And, um, at the end of about the two years, the same criminal group tried to kidnap my daughter at a local mall. It was the first violent crime, um, at that particular mall since it opened. And, um, and I guess the, uh, the conclusion was me finding out where the threats came from and, um, finding out that it was actually from family. So to put a little perspective on this, your kids are, uh, what ages are we talking? At the time, my daughter was uh, about 19 years old, and she was the oldest. Um, she's now about 35. Uh, I've got a, uh, a son that's about 32, and a daughter's 30, and another son that's 27. So they're all adults now, doing well. But uh, back then, they were all young and, you know, under my protection as a uh, I thought, and, um, you know, trying to take care of them and that type of thing. As a protector and a provider for your family, that must have actually just been really a daunting, what is going on type mentality. How, what do I do next? Where do, how do I keep my, my family safe? What in the world? Yeah, you know, um, you're absolutely right. And I would say that, uh, you know, it's it's a normal thing for us when we're working, you just uh, automatically go into this hypervigilance, right? This stress reactivity response where you're kind of ready. You know, Gil Martin calls it the sixth sense, right, that you get. But uh, when you end up having to carry that at home and there's no downtime, right? I mean, everything that you hear, everything that you see, you question and you get up. And, you know, uh, there was a period about uh, a, a few years time where I wasn't sleeping very well. 
Um, and most of us in law enforcement know, you know, when you don't sleep, you actually gain weight. Um, because you, you're not eating right and those types of things, and, and your body really needs that, right? That's the other part of health. But I would say that, uh, you know, I've got, um, I was grinding my teeth at night. Um, uh, it's really when I was first diagnosed with PTSD, but uh, my, I, my blood pressure went up, you know, it, it, it went crazy. And um, at one point in time, they thought I was having a stroke because my blood pressure was like 195 over 165, and I could barely move. Um, I got this uh, skin condition called vitiligo, and it's uh, really an autoimmune disorder that they believe is caused from stress. Um, but a lot of sleepless nights and, um, you know, being up all the time trying to protect my family. And, um, you know, it's bad enough to have it at work, but when you have it 24-7, it just kind of really uh, messes you up. Sure, of course. So are you having these conversations with your family about what's going on? Are you are you telling them or warning them per se? Yeah. You know, that's the interesting part. And I, I think that if I were to do it differently, I may do it a little bit differently and maybe get a little bit more help from some friends. But, you know, as a law enforcement officer, I would say that, um, going to these homes and seeing what being victimized does to you and how it changes your perspective and makes you grow up and maybe gives you a, a defensive and maybe a hateful worldview, I didn't want that for my family. I didn't want it for my wife. So I really kept all this stuff from them. And, you know, when we are, are moving in a three-day time, you know, explaining to my wife that there's better opportunities and we can make so much money on our house and we need to move now and those types of things, you know, she kind of went along with it. But um, at the time, I really didn't share it with my family. I didn't share it with my wife uh, or my closest friends and uh kind of took it all on myself. And that's probably not a, a good thing to do now that I look back. You know, oftentimes within our uh, our relationships, they ultimately know something's up. Um, you know, surely your your wife had to know. She knew something was going on. She just trusted you enough to say, hey, we're going to flow with this. Something's going on. And obviously now some med- no sleeping, some medical things coming up. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we we talk about it now, and she knew some stuff was up, but she thought a lot of it had to do with the work and my career, and and you know that was part of it. But uh, she didn't know this other part, and I think it was the time that I became very uh, hyper vigilant at home and carrying guns everywhere I go, and making sure if the kids are going somewhere, I need to know addresses, I need to know who they're. I'd have a con- our rule in the house was my wife or I had to have a conversation with parents as to who they were, if they were picking them up, where they were going, how long that was going to be. And there was a lot of spot checking to see if my kids were where they were supposed to be and a lot of phone calls. And it was all part of being, you know, not trusting anybody. And um, it, it was probably a little tough for my kids to grow up that way. But I think they just thought it was part of, you know, me being dad and trying to be protectant. You know, police officers, as we know, are a little bit overprotecting with their families because of what we see. But it was, uh, you know, probably triple that. I feel like we could spend a lot of time here, but I, I think we need to uh, I think we need to move towards um, talking about recognition of um, your physical health, your emotional health, your relationship health is now starting to take its toll. What was the next you know, hey, I need to get healthy. You said you got diagnosed with PTSD at this point. You're obviously seeing somebody 
kind of what's the aftermath of all that? How do you, how do you unpack all that and start getting healthy? Yeah, you know, I got to tell you that um, as we talk about it here and I look back, I mean, it was a process, right? A complete process. It took quite a while. And I think it, it took quite a while because um, sometimes you get a little bit in denial about some of these things and you don't want to believe it's true. And then um, I, I think we have a focus sometimes on everybody else and, you know, everybody else is important and I got to be good for the job. And, you know, I got to be there for my partners and, and all that. So it's just always trying to hold your end of the bargain up and, and be a good person and be a good employee. And, you know, I, we're brainwashed in a sense and not a bad way. They don't try to do that. But I mean, from the academy to everything, I mean, you know, and you look at what your responsibility is um, as a police officer out there, um, you take that you, you take that to heart. And, and you really try to serve, you know, with some integrity. So um, trying to disconnect from that is really, really difficult, especially when it becomes kind of your purpose in life, right? So I think uh, that entire process probably takes five times longer than it should, um, but it's really hard to unplug. It's really hard to say, okay, I'm at a point now where I'm not feeling good, I'm not doing well, my health is terrible, and I have other responsibilities that actually are more important than my job, let me pull away a little bit. That's really difficult because there's so many things to try to navigate, right? And if you don't have the help, it's really, you, you don't know exactly where to go. You have short-term disability, long-term disability, you have FMLA. You, you know, you have all these things that you have to kind of process and, you know, workers' comp and where does that fit in and how am I going to pay and for all these things and am I going to still get paid and what does that look like? So, well, for everything that the department's trained you in, they've never trained you in how to utilize FMLA, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, you know, you, they have all of these options, but nobody wants to use them either because I, I'm not calling it pride, but it, it's, it's, you know, it becomes their life, you know, and that's, that's something that people don't want to step away from. It's their identity. It's who they are. It's, you know, how they identify themselves in public and, and it's hard to, to move to that next step. Yeah. I think what we're doing is, is, um, and, and whether we put this on ourselves or, uh, it's inherent on the job, but a lot of things we do is really important, right? And some of it can be life or death. So you know what being there means, you know, what answering the call is and making a backup and being there for your partners and being there for the department, right? You just know how, what a big responsibility that is. So to pull away from that almost makes you feel like you're not doing your part. And it's hard to, to feel like that's the case for you, right? When you drive around and you put band-aids on problems all day long and you see people that are not living their best life, you, do, you don't want to feel like that. You want to feel like you've been responsible with what's in front of you. And you want to cherish and value that. And it makes it pretty difficult to do when you actually have to go take care of something else. There's an expectation of you showing up every time. But that expectation of showing up is not just physical. There's a, there's a mentality that, uh, expectation as well that you show up with your game ready because it is life or death. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by the brainwashing. I actually talk about this. We've, we've, this is the first time you and I have got to have any kind of conversation. But... Um, I say that a lot in my presentations that, and I don't say it demeaning to a department, but of sorts a brainwashing occurs, uh, to us in, in the first responder field that we change the way we're going to think, uh, we re rewire the way our thought processes function. 
and um, they preach one thing, but there's, you know, subliminally things going on there and expectation of you taking care of your partners, taking care of your community, um, you know, survival, uh, because you can't have these emotions just showing up randomly. You know, they, they do it for a reason. There's a training process there. But as a clinician of this, a science, scientist of this, what are your, I'd love to hear more thoughts on that about how you tell people now to balance some of that uh, brainwashing as it were. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's a really interesting concept. And I think now when I talk to about a five-year officer and they're feeling a lot of stress and maybe some anxiety and they're having some issues and they tell me about their involvement with their department and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And they're all in. And I think that's exactly where they want you to be. Mm Mm-hmm. You are 100% effective. You're a go-getter. You're doing everything that they anticipated you would be when you signed that dotted line. And it's perfect for them. Of course. And there's nothing in it for you. So it's it's a really tough for people to be able to transition that thought process to go, wait a minute, how much of this entire involvement is about me? How much of this career is about me. And that is a really tough concept for people because when you're, when you've had that and it happens every day, you, and and, you know, we use brainwash and, you know, we can associate with stuff with the past, right? And we know that's not exactly what you're saying, but we're saying that this culture really is set in motion and it goes forward at a million miles an hour and you just fall into place with that. And you figure it out a few years later that it's really hard to stop that train and take a step back and take a look at what this, this involvement, this inertia, this thing that you've jumped in the middle of is actually how it's affecting you. And, and that's the difficult of it, difficulty. Well, most of us are idealistic in nature as we enter into this. And it is a honorable and noble uh, endeavor. So what we're doing is is for the good, is for the greater good, is for the right. Um, but I, I I, view that a little bit as a, a distortion of loyalty. You know, are we really being loyal to ourselves as we enter into this profession? Oftentimes we lose sight of that. Uh, and it's a, um, I, I have had many talks with people uh, often about, are you, are you being loyal to yourself as much as you're being loyal to your department? Yeah, you know, when you said... Um when you lose sight of that. And I, my first thought was, did we ever have that sight? Because I think that's the issue is that you go in and I mean, think about the Academy. When did you talk about mental health? When did you talk about emotions? When did you think about when, when did they have a conversation about sometimes you're going to go on tough calls and it does something to you and you need to step away and process that. I've never heard that. Right. Those, those things are not conversations. They, they weren't have. talked about. They weren't talked about. And I think that's that's a mistake. Right. That's uh, but we we should be should be training on a different level. Right. And mental health. And, you know, and I got to say, there are some programs and there are some people and there are some folks that really get it. Um, you know, we were talking about the uh, police chief from Orem. Uh, I don't remember his name. Josh. Yeah, Josh. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I mean, he gets it right. Oh, 100 percent. And he's a leader. And he leads mm-hmm. with that. 
and he talks about mental health and he puts value in his employees, not as employees as going out and shagging calls, but employees as being held together and being in the right position so they can, they can help, right, when they need to help. Well, because he's seeing them as people first, right? Yeah. Like Because he's been in the space that he thinks that most of these people are going to get into after 25 years, which is, he goes, I wish the chief that I had at my time would have treated me this way and seen what I had gone through and maybe been a little bit more compassionate. And he doesn't look like somebody that would do that, right? Big buff, you know? And it, I think it blows some of his officers' minds that he's willing to have that conversation with them. I think it's important to note that there are officers leaders, commanders, chiefs, and agencies out there who are looking at this from a new perspective like what we're talking about today. So we're talking, you know, we're we're roundtable in a worst-case scenario type agency yeah. or, or, or chief, but there are people out there doing this. Uh, Josh is a great example of that. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, and that's to what you yourself have been involved in in the last couple of years, Victor, is starting to open up this wellness conversation because – I have personally spoken with some of the officers that, you know, you've worked with. And the thing that always sticks out to me is that they go, hey, this is the first guy that actually gets me. The first guy I've sat down across and he looks me in the eye and says, I know what you're saying. And this is how we we start moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say that's pretty special in the sense that I do understand this culture because I've been there. And not only have I been there, but I've had a mental health issue. I've struggled through PTSD, right? I struggled with the job. I struggled with supervisors. I struggled with all of that. And then I worked in the system at the employee assistance unit and how to get people help and how to work through the process and what is it that they need, right? So I think when I see people and they, you know, I hate to say, you know, broken, but they've, they're off their game, yeah, right? I can really have a good understanding for that. And I think I can, I can talk between the lines a little bit and bring the focus right to them, you know, and get them to realize that, you know, you're not that superhero that they told you you were, that you felt like, right? And um, we need to start actually looking at some of the other things that are going on and uh, see if we can work through some of those things. Well, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it, and when I talked to one gentleman, he said it was the first time you felt like, I, I don't think your thought process is to have them go lie down on the couch, cross their arms, <laughs> stare up at the ceiling and say, so how do you feel right now? Right. It was, it's a much more direct conversation it says, I know you're fucked up or I know something's going on. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Is, is that your approach in one, I, one way or another? Yeah, I would say that's, that's my approach. But, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you think about a regular clinician, they may ask somebody, you know, well, if you had any um, suicidal thoughts, you sound like you've had some depression over the last month, things aren't going well, I've had some critical incidents, but have you had any suicidal thoughts, right? Well, most officers, especially if they don't know you very well, they're going to say no. No. Right? They're just not going to be honest. And in, in realistic, when you ask that question, they've talked to people that they've put into some of these centers that have suicidal thoughts, so they don't identify with that. But if I ask, hey, so let me ask you this. Do you sometimes go without a backup? And you just think, F it. I don't care. Yes, yes, I do that often, right? It's the same thing. We're really talking the same language now, right? You know, when I ask them, hey, um, do you sometimes rush into a a scene and maybe, maybe just have a thought? You know, the good thing is if I die... 
my wife will get some money. My family's better off. They'll be taken care of. And, and, you know, that's actually a higher step, what you're saying there, right? That, that's, that's actually really thinking about it, right? But just to have that thought that, they, you know, what they'll be taken care of, you know? It'll be okay, right? And that's suicidal ideation. Really what they're not saying is like, I have thought about it. I, I don't necessarily want to die, but I don't know how to live, you know? And I've been making all these mistakes and doing all these things. And so I feel like I can connect with that, right? I think there's a way that we should assess people when they're law enforcement or they're firefighters because we think differently. So you can't ask somebody a direct question that's a law enforcement officer and say, you know, are you having suicidal thoughts? Because we most likely have suicidal action, not thoughts. Which your background gives you a better understanding of what questions to ask. That's pretty apparent. You know, are you not wearing your vest anymore are you going to these calls by yourself are you going to the hot call area alone uh, are you running too fast to these calls all great questions that uh, oftentimes only an insider would know what that means yep yep i think that's i think that's right and i mean uh, you know when you say insider uh, when i think about insider yes i've worked the job but yes i've had the mental health issues but I've also then had a son who's had the issue. So when you actually have a family member that's working through it, you have the direct connection of working with someone that you're absolutely close to that you really want to help. And I would say that that's a, that's a pretty big deal because working with a first responder, whether I just met them five minutes ago, I care for them. And I care for them because not just because they're, they're a human being, but because they're a brother or they're a sister. And they signed on for that cause, right? They're willing to give it all. I mean, these people work in my city, right? They might come to my house to save us. I want them to be the, the best possible person that they can be when it hits the fan, right? So they need to be, they need to be dialed in, right? And so I, I think about those things like this person is not in a really good position uh, to, to take care of business. This brings up a fascinating point, if I can redirect the conversation a little bit to the mental uh, health professional end, because uh, I know we do have some mental health professionals that, that listen in. And uh, what, what do you think are some of your um, uh, advantages uh, and maybe even things that you could pass on as a mental health professional now in this uh, community of successes that you've had? Well, I, I think that um, what I would have to say is if you're not a first responder, um, that it's okay. This, this profession needs you, right? But really what we need is we need people that understand mm-hmm. first responders, right? So that's going to take some work. You know, and I can go into any other field and I don't need to know anything about substance. I don't need to know anything about schizophrenia. But the truth is to work with this culture, I need to know about the culture because the culture needs to be comfortable with me and my level of commitment. So the people that do well with the, with the first responder culture are people that go to the stations, go to the precincts, go, go to the ride-alongs. They, they go to the connections. They're very familiar with all the different pieces and parts when it comes to mental health. Uh, and, and let me just say this is that one of the things that I've come to understand with the first responder is that when they come to me, I have to be a one-stop shop, meaning that 
I need to know all the answers. And, and I don't mean about therapy. I mean about location. So if they're reaching out to help for me for the very first time, they're probably at a level that's probably pretty significant, right? Um, and even if it's not, I, I need to look at them and go, they need peer support. They need some navigation. They need a therapist. They need a high-level therapist. They need psychiatry. They need psychology. They need outpatient. They need inpatient. I need to be able to have all those options in my hip pocket so I can grab them by the hand and say, I'm going to help you navigate this entire field because it's a pretty scary and, and lengthy process. So I guess I would say to that um, is that I, I think you need to have some pretty good involvement with the first responder world if you're going to work in that world. But the one thing I can tell you is that when I was in law enforcement and I talked to people in the mental health world, I loved when people were experts in what they did. And they can teach me and they can train me because we're pretty good learners. Right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, we're back to resources again. Right. Like this right. is this is we're, we're on the, the behavioral health side, not the peer support side. And yeah. that was a lot of people's key points that, you know, if any officer comes to me with any type of issues, I better have 10 different referrals for whatever they need. And that's the same side on your end. Like you you need to have something prepared in case of whatever. Right. I love the fact that he's he's saying the same thing that most peer support units say. I've got one chance with this guy or gal and. I've got one shot. I need to have every resource available. Most times it's higher level care clinician. Uh, and it's, it's gotta be a trusted, uh, culturally competent, uh, therapist, but you're sitting here saying nearly the same thing. I got one shot with this guy. So it better be right the first time. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really lucky to work in a great community, but, I'm a contractor, but I do work for a mental health company, and it's called La Frontera Impact. They're a statewide, beautiful company, but the one thing that they do is that they partner with the law enforcement community. They actually helped start a grant. Uh, There's a friend of mine called Nick Margiotta. He's a 25-year police officer. I work with him directly uh, with a few other people that have worked in law enforcement. But uh, Nick Margiotta wrote a grant, and that grant was for officer wellness, So with that grant, what we have managed to do is actually hire some folks, right? Some law enforcement officers, some counselors, so on and so forth. And so I act with that program as a peer support, a navigator, or a counselor, or a friend, right? So um, if they send somebody to me from whatever agency or, you know, department, then I figure out what they need. And within our group, what we have is we have all the culturally competent folks at any level that they need, right? And what I love about that is what Chateau has become uh, for us is that excellent connection for inpatient treatment. I'm telling you right now, when you say inpatient, every person that I've ever worked with has that mental picture of a place where they're in a, in a straight jacket and locked doors and people are yelling, right. And acting crazy. But I'm telling you, this Chateau is not that place. This Chateau is a beautiful facility. That's an unlocked open door facility where people walk in and out as they please. And as you're there, it's a beautiful environment in the woods and in a place for people to actually take a deep breath in nature and stop for a minute and think about their life and, and, and really work through some of the issues that you might have created or not seen coming or, 
or things that as a result the job has given you, right? Well, and that's the interesting thing too is we've had a conversation. This was maybe a year ago, but it was also under the pretense of like there's there's some more things that could be available that that you know when someone can't do uh, residential treatment or you know outpatient or or whatever the you know it may be. Like I'm still looking for a trauma retreat in Arizona that can be appropriate or, you know, there's still a little bit of a ways to go to, to figure out what we can do to make sure that every single person, those that have families that can't step away or whatever, can still get the help that they need. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of room for some people to help in 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 this world uh, with with this specific, uh, you know, geographics. Um but, um, you know, I've been working on that same concept for, for quite a while. In fact, uh, on Saturday, I'm going to go up north, and I think I found the property that I'm going to buy to really try to do a custom build that's going to be a large house where we can do some of this trauma retreat type of stuff. So, you know, really what I told myself last year after having some conversations was that I need to make a little bit more money because some of these things cost a lot of money, right? So I was very lucky yeah. to kind of push into some business. And, you know, my company last year made about $1.3 million. And um, it's a beautiful thing because, you know, we can now help in some of those areas that we've been thinking about and, and you know, think finding the gaps, right? Um, and so it's definitely some stuff that I'm, I'm slowly working on because there's a great need out in our communities. And, you know, I, I, I just in my head, one of the most relaxing things for me is to get away, uh, away from, you know, every mean environment or a bad guy and, and, and be someplace maybe in nature where you can just sit down, relax and take a deep breath and maybe try to figure some things out for yourself. Right. So if I'm going to circle us back a little bit to something that uh, that I'm pretty passionate about, and and which is that family piece you talked about right at the beginning of the conversation. You were uh, really concerned about your 13 year old, and obviously uh, passionate about raising your son uh, to be a, a bold human in this world, a self sufficient, productive human being, um, but. Officers and firefighters and first responders out here are trying to navigate this with their family. Uh, let's, if you don't mind, let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. What, what, what would you, uh, what advice would you give to these first responders out here on how to navigate these difficult, really difficult challenges of first responder and home? Yeah, I, I feel like that's a, that's a big conversation. Sure. Because right? there's so many places and things to go. I'll tell you, as I um, worked in the employee assistance unit, what we found was that 50% of our demographics wanted to use the, the resources that were on the, that the department had, right? But the other 50% really didn't want anything to do with their departments. They wanted to go somewhere outside and, and build their own you know, relationships and those types of things. So I, I think that um, every department out there has to have both options available, right? And... Um, I, I work for an option now here in the Valley, it's statewide, and, and that option is that there's several of us that, that can meet with people and uh, quick assessment, figure out what they're at, and then plug them in in the right direction. Um, so I believe there's that. Um, when it comes to families, can you remind me what the question was with the families? Oh, just w- what advice you would give to first responders out there that are, are uh, maybe burdened with uh, how to navigate their career and keep their home life intact, protect their families, get them healthy, get them raised. Yeah. You know, um, I, th- I think for me, um, 
and this is going to sound maybe a little bit crazy, but um, one thing that, that law enforcement first responders are not, and that is selfish, right? We do everything for everybody and we put ourselves last. But I would say that if you want to have a family, if you, you need to be a little selfish. You have to consider yourself, consider family vacations, consider your family, consider everything about your life, not just the, the uh, career, and uh, put yourself and your family first and uh, really um, try to commit to that and work through that. And, um, you know, to have a great job as a first responder is amazing, but use that job to benefit your family, right? So, um, and, and the difference is some people that are in as first responders, they don't get their family very involved, right? Um, my kids, you know, rode in cop cars and were down at the academy, went on runs with us, went to the shoot house, did all that kind of stuff. I would go there on the weekends. Don't tell them I told you that. And, you know, go into the buildings and we would have, you know, we'd have seven or eight of their friends and we'd do airsoft and we'd learn how to clear buildings and stuff. So they were on that journey with me and uh, learn how to do what dad was doing, right? So, and you know, what I'm thinking at the time too is I'm, I'm building little law enforcement legends too that might follow in dad's footsteps, right? But when you start getting toward the middle of the career, you have a little different thought process, right? Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would say put yourself and your family first. Use your job to project you into the world that you wanna be and that should be vacationing, having some great times together and, and all that kind of stuff, um, which is really hard to get in your head, I think. Um, I went to a Gil Martin um, conference, and the first thing he said was like, everybody here, uh, hold up your phone if and show me in your calendar your next training or something. You know, out of 300 people, 298 people raised their hand with their phone. And, and then he, the next thing he said is like, he said, now show me the next family vacation or outing or the, the, you know, thing that you're going to go see your kid at this soccer or the show me that. And there was like three people that held up their phone and it was just really, really sad. And it was a pivotal point for me in my career having about three years on. And I thought, I don't want to be that for the rest of my life. Because when I first got married, I told my wife that we were going to have a different family and we were going to have a beautiful family, and, and we were going to do this thing together, right? And, and somehow, some way, the career pulls you away from that. And um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very hard pull. So you would say, with the divorce rates as high as they are and, and the relationship issues that, you know, first responders are facing, like, that's a key point right there. You know, vacations, time, quality time, not just time, but quality time where you're present you're able to you know communicate be there um, but I, I mean a big one that I've heard a lot of people talk about is the lack of communication with their significant other or their children right and that's something you've talked about Brad where mm -hmm. you know you may have may have done something different if you had a chance to go back and do it again yeah you know uh Oh, man, that I'll tell you, that's uh, it's a really interesting concept, right? And I talked to a lot of people about this very thing and, you know, learning to be a listener and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if you think about the culture of being a first responder, you get in quickly, you ask a few questions, you figure it out and you fix it, right? And I mean, that's completely opposite of what you should be at home, right? But you get this pattern in your head and you continue to do it and it becomes just burned into your mind. 
And, and really what I teach some of the first responders that I work with now is when their wife starts telling them that story, right? They got to ask a question. And the question is, do you want me to listen or do you want me to fix it? Right? Because 99% of the time they just want you to listen. And 99% of the time as a first responder, I, I want to fix it because you know what? I can fix it. And a lot of times it's not a, it's not a pleasant fix. It's just getting fixed. Right. So I can move on to something else. And so, um, you know, that it, it's a process of, of really learning, um, that being a first responder really gets you into this groove and that groove is not very conducive for the family environment. So you go and you, you, you wear down this rut all day long and then you come home and you try to use that same model and it does not work. Yeah. Oftentimes creating our own uh, chaos so that we can bring calm to it just to make ourselves feel better. It's, uh, it's so true. And, and the self-care piece, uh, I, I want to circle back to that just for a second and, and say uh, something was said to me a long time ago, and I don't remember who said it, but it was that self-care looks selfish to most first responders and the untrained. Uh, meaning we don't really know how to self-care. We don't know. That's not something that's been taught to us or you really even talked about, but it's an elusive definition when you first start uh, endeavoring to do that. But uh, yeah, from, from uh, creating, from, from creating chaos to bringing calm to it, that's a pretty heavy topic when you start talking about people trying to understand the chaos that they're bringing home and then just sitting and listening. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, uh, you know, I, I know some people are doing a better job of training with, in, with these spaces, right? But I think it needs to be a very, very intentional program that's built into law enforcement training environment. And you don't see much of that these days. But if we don't train it, then you're not going to do it right. Because everybody says the same things, right? Like, remember, you know, keep your old friends and, you know, remember to do the things that you love and all that. But, I mean, you get into this groove, right? And that environment just sucks you in and um, it doesn't give you the space to do any of that. Because, I mean, the first thing, it's the, the field that needs people. We don't have people, mm -hmm. right? And you're, you're always doing more work than you should be and working more hours than you can and, and, and all that kind of thing. So you're just sucked into that environment. So when they're always pulling you and continuing to pull you, it's hard to pull back and go, well, you know, I had a thing that I wanted to do on, on Saturday, so I don't want to work this Saturday, you know? How, how much guilt comes up with the people that you're seeing when, when that thought process comes up? Because they just bail normally and say, okay, I'll work, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, that's going back to that uh, brainwashing that we talked about, right? I mean, they don't intentionally do it, or maybe they did, who knows? But, I mean, it's being done, and it's just the environment that you work, and it's the career path, and, I mean, it's push, 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 and everything's important. And, you know, if, if a three guys on my squad are working and they need four, like, I got to be there for them. Like, I'm going to go hang out with my wife and we're going to go to dinner. But, like, if something happens to these guys, I can't live with that. Sure. And that's how you think about those things, right? And, and you put the importance on something other than the, your family. Because that's life or death, and your family is like, eh, it's not life or death. Like we're talking about, I don't even like that place, right? <laughs> I don't even want to get some fried chicken over there. Forget that, right? Well, and and the uh, you referencing Gil Martin's book again, you you know, going out to dinner is not going to be all that pleasurable because you're in a hyper vigilant state. I mean, you, subconsciously you know this, overtly you don't actually are not recognizing that, but you're 
you're hypervigilant. So dinners out are not that enjoyable anyway. You're not really in tune with conversing. She or who, the significant other or spouse may be talking, but you're not hearing. You're not really present. You're wondering what's going on at home. That's that overinvestment piece that Gilmar yeah. talks about. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that I really try hard with folks um, is working kind of through that because I don't think you can turn it off, but you can definitely turn it down, right? And um, it's it's an absolute long process. If you think about the, the process that you took for your training and how many weeks, months, and years it took for you to get very, very proficient at the things that you do, um, that's all part of that proficiency it's just another piece of it so how if you change one thing you don't necessarily well i would say most people would argue is you're changing the proficiency right so if i'm not ready i can't shoot quickly and um it's it's not really good thinking and it gets us in trouble mm. but getting people to just like back off of that turn it down a little bit and and then be very strategic about what you do like i'll go in a restaurant now i don't sit I sit with my back to the door intentionally. Why? Because I know that if I don't, and I sit in a place where there's traffic of any kind and movement and those types of things, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to time it. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to consider it. And then my brain's just going to go and go to work. It's going to go to work, right? It's like having a puppy dog in the car and you open that car door like they're ready to go to work. And that's the programming we've had, right? So I have to deprogram that. And um, I have to remember, be present, be present be present, right? And I even tell my wife and I give her permission, remind me to be present, remind me to be present, do the snap the finger thing, right? Do whatever it takes to get me back in focus because I might lose my focus. And that's just a hazard of the job. There's a series of things that, uh, that even still, I, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on five years, am, I'm five years removed from uh, being on the job. Austin and I were just having this conversation, what, a couple months ago? You're talking about Panda Express? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, same conversation, yeah. He said, why did you sit with your back to the door? I said, I did that. I do that intentionally now. I do that on purpose because it's part of being mindful, being present, listening, so I can actually hear the words coming out of your mouth because if I look at that door, I'll miss maybe half of it. See, but yours was very intentional because it was the first time in a long time we had eaten together, and I purposely put my stuff with my back to the door and then you sat where my stuff was. So that was very shocking to me of like, wait, he just moved myself after I gave him the opportunity to sit facing the door. So I was very confused. But I do want to spend a minute just talking about what that looks like and maybe get your perspective. Because for me personally, you know, disengaging from that, uh, has, has been, uh, becoming a much better practitioner of mindfulness, which is kind of maybe an elusive word. We as, as, as first responders don't understand it, so we don't really embrace it very well, uh, but becoming a better practitioner of being mindful or present. I like the way you posed that just a second ago. Just being present, which is grounding yourself to being right here, uh, listening and hearing and active listening with your whole body, not just your ears, and but your mind as well. What do you tell the folks coming in there, sitting down in your office with you to be a practitioner of being present? Well, you know, I, I think if you turn to tactics, then you go wrong. Meaning that if I tell people to sit with their back at the door and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. It, it, it's impossible. What you have to do is you have to work with people 
and get them wanting to have a, a valid, wonderful conversation. And if they can want that, then they're going to then you can give them little tips, right? And how to change so they can actually have those valuable conversations and connections with people and, and be present totally. But I, I think that um, just working on the fact of discussing the connections and the loved ones and all that and getting people to like reconnect with that and then talk through what does that look like? Um, wh- what would it take for you guys to reconnect and have some meaningful conversation? How could you have that conversation? What does that look like? What, wh- how, how would you start it? And do you feel like at this point in your life, there's some things maybe you need to apologize about? Are there some things that you feel like that have been sitting around that you need to discuss? What does that look like? And because if you have the, the, the why nailed, right, and you have the want to want to connect and, and you have the purpose, then just the tactics of moving some of that stuff to the background and, and sitting strategically and, and, you know, not taking your phone or leaving it in the car or shutting it off and those kinds of things. Those are all like little tactics that you can do to make sure that you're having those connections. But I think a lot of times we want the connection, but we don't know how to connect. So if you can figure out the connection, you can figure out the other part of it. It's the way I kind of look at it. Which is counterintuitive to us. Uh, it is. You know, the go back to the brainwashing, right? We've been, uh, there's, a, there's a, you know, a theory and an argument to be made that first responders are, are drawn to the industry of sorts. Not, maybe not all, but most in some uh, life event or some scale or they're made for this and, and consequently or subsequently maybe uh, they're a little more resilient prone to it. There's, you know, different data points out there. You may be able to speak to that better, but the reality is, uh, most are oftentimes made for this industry and they're, uh, you know, I'm going to do better. And then you layer onto that, this brainwash of, uh, which is prone to an excuse of sorts and to not have those conversations. You know, I, I, I know she's, she or he is talking to me and telling me something important, but something could come through that door right now and kill me. Well, the chances of that happening are fairly slim, you know, it's, which Therein is the counterintuitive part. I've been told something's going to come through that door and kill me. Uh, and we're choosing to, to overlay that uh, and put off the more important conversations. Uh, so I absolutely love where you're going with this. Yeah. You know, I, I love cognitive behavioral therapy because realistically the, the therapy is based off evidence. And it's something that law enforcement officers really understand, right? Is there any evidence for it? Right. So I use that a lot with law enforcement officers, because if they start having that conversation about being ready, you know, besides telling them, like, you think you're a bad MF, right? That kind of thing. Like, so you want to have the jump on somebody. Is that what the conversation is? That what the thought process is? Right. So first off, when's the last time you read somebody going into Panda Express and shooting the place up? That's the first thing. Uh, well, uh, never. Right. When's the last time you heard of any restaurant, somebody coming in and actually shooting in a fast food type of restaurant and shoot, just shooting people, right? No, but, well, you know, this other thing can happen. Okay, well, when's the last time that happened? You know, so what it is is we take this catastrophic thinking that we've been programmed with that actually saves our life on the street, right? And then we take that into our personal lives and it just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't function right. So trying to get people like giving them the evidence. Look, you're a bad dude. And the truth is you have a gun. And if somebody does come in here, I have no doubt, even if you have a second delay, you're going to hear something, you're going to spin around, you're going to take care of business. So for now, 
why don't you just sit like this? You, you can deal with it, right? And be present for the conversation because if you're not present for a conversation, you're missing your life, man. What's what's their response to that? Like, do they take that well, or does or do they give you kind of the middle finger at first and then come back <laughs> next session? Like, okay, maybe well, you're right. I, I think sometimes uh, I have both reactions, but uh, and sometimes you got to talk through it more, right? Sometimes they'll give you situations, say, yeah. well, this one time, you know, and that kind of thing, and I'm, you know, but yeah. again, throwing evidence at it, and 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 say, you know, maybe at the end of it, just throw your hands up and go, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe you do need to sit like that, but maybe you should just get some order out and some takeout and maybe you should take it home and then you can actually relax and you can sit with your wife. And you can have a conversation there. What do you think about that? Which brings up the point of, of data, the, you know, the data proven that we uh, live 20 years, depending on which data you look at, but 20, 22 years, we die 20, 22 years sooner than the people we protect. That's, data and that's stress-based trauma-based information and then also data that our marriages don't last as long as the uh, normal public uh, marriages that we're protecting Uh, that's all data that that I like to put in front of guys and gals in this industry and say here's here's the proof that this is not working something's broken so now it's looking at what's broken in your in your world do you do you talk about that side of it very much when you Talk to your folks. Yeah, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, as a therapist, when you get people in front of you, usually there's been some pretty um, significant loss or fights or mm-hmm. incidents that uh, got people in a pretty bad place, right? It, it's kind of like when they finally step out and say, I have some mental health issues, right? It's not like I'm feeling a little bit of stress or I'm feeling a little bit of anxiety or, you know, I didn't sleep pretty good last night for the first time, right? It's usually pretty significant. And uh, I would say with that, that um, it, it, it takes a lot to kind of get your head around that and start to work with people. Um, and I don't remember where I was going with that. Sorry. Um, just g- generic data of what's not working in our personal lives. Yeah. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, most of the time it's just taking like a, a really honest look with people. What I have found in my experience is that what causes a lot of officers um, and firefighters anxiety is most folks live with integrity and they believe everything that the department's hired them right for, right? They, they have honor and respect and all those things and they're honest and, you know, they, they do all the things right. Well, sometimes in your personal life, you're not doing things right. And, you know, not even to mention that when you start having some, you know, trauma and things like that, you start using some escapist behavior and doing things you're not proud of and those types of things. But, The anxiety comes from, in a sense, living a lie and it not being in line with who you really are. And so I find that people really want to make the changes because it doesn't feel good to be living in a way that they absolutely know 100% that it's not the way to live because who they are when before they got to the job and all the testing they went through, that was right then becoming a, a, you know, a first responder and now, you know, working at the highest level with integrity. And then if you venture off from that and it's just not coherent anymore, it doesn't work, it doesn't fit. And whether if that's your life, if it's something you're doing at work that's goofy, or if it's your personal life, you just know internally that it's not right. And you're the one that actually should be putting it back in line, right? 
And um, I think that's what's really unsettling for a lot of people is that. So really, I just focus on them and some of the changes and things that they need to make and start making suggestions and, you know, work on self-care and those types of things. Well, it's, it's realigning people with their core values, hundred percent, right? Like that's, that's a huge part of the therapeutical process for everyone is like, what are the core values? How have you strayed from that? And let's get you back to those because it's proven through years and years of living or whatever it may be that that might be the happiest time of your life. And we can get you back there, but it's also through improving your behaviors, your reactions, you know, all, all of these other, you know, things that are involved in that. But you wake up one day and you realize that, that the marker is over way over here to the left. And somehow I've ended up way over here to the right, uh, on, on some of my beliefs and, and that could not agree more. Somehow I've been lying or deceiving the, that person in the mirror unbeknownst to me, but uh, you know, I was altruistic in nature. I thought I was doing noble, something noble and honorable and, and was more than likely, but my core, uh, I was missing the mark ever so slight. Uh, but over a period of time, five years, 10 years, 15, 19 years, uh, now I look up and I want to be over there. And now how do I get back? That's the challenge. Well, that's why you go to people like Victor. Absolutely. That's, that's what you, that's the idea behind, I mean, that's your goal in therapeutic profession is to help people get back to that point, right? Because you were able to get back to that point. Yeah, I, I definitely was. And I think that is the absolute point. I think people come to me sometimes, and even the first time they're like, oh, I'm not sure if getting a divorce is right for me and start talking about all these things. And I'm just like, time out. Like, that's all the stuff that will kind of take care of itself. How about you? Where are you? Right. And doing that realignment, right? So let's work on you. And this stuff here, I mean, I know it's significant, it's on your mind and all that, but let's let's get you getting realigned again with everything that you believe that is true about you, right? With your integrity and everything that you believe and, and get back to that core person of who you are and who you're meant to be, really, within this purpose, right? That you're on this life for. So if you can realign that, then all the other stuff just kind of falls into place, right? And, you know, I don't want people to get divorced, right? I don't believe in it and all that stuff, but it, none of that matters. It, it matters whatever they want, but what you want shouldn't be determined on how you feel. Mm-hmm. If you realign those core values, then those other things can be realigned. And, and it's really funny how quickly it falls into place. I've had people that have come to me and they're on the brink of divorce and everything's wrong and they have all kinds of issues and they're mad at their boss and everything. And like, if you just work on realigning those core values and get them closer to the person that they know they should be and living with integrity again, those things work out really quickly. Sometimes in weeks, somebody will come back and say, hey, I'm back with my wife. We're doing this. We've had a conversation, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's just, it's unbelievable how quickly it works, right? But then they're happy and the anxiety goes away and the depression and all of some of the issues and some of the stuff that they were doing, it all kind of goes away because they're realigning with those values. That, and, and, and I mean, that's the why. That's the stuff that drives us in life, right? So when you realign that, you can realign with your family and your purpose and all your people that, you know, are there to support you. It's about action. It's about action, right? Like though you, you, they may realize and see that these are their core values, but it's taking that information and then applying it to make their life better on the out. Because I have heard, I think I actually heard this out of your mouth. And this was maybe two years ago where you were working with a guy and he felt great after he saw you. And you said to him, 
you feel great after you saw me because you, you just talked through, you're going to feel bad again in a few days. And what are you going to do then? Because he hadn't done that action portion, right? He just kind of spilled his guts and it's like, man, I, I feel better. Yeah. And I kind of let it go. And so I feel better about yeah. it and stuff. No, I think you're hundred percent right. It's about action. I mean, we can talk about it all day, but really it's about putting the things and, and realistically putting the things that you know that you need to, you should be doing anyway. Right. But I, th- I think the realignment though with yourself has to come first and that is making yourself a priority, doing what it takes to get realigned with yourself. And that is, is addressing your mental health, uh, addressing your physical health, your psychological health, your f- physiological health, your spiritual health. It's, it's really just taking a deep dive as to like, okay, like who the, like five years, who am I now? Where, what, I don't even believe in that. What am I doing? Right. Yeah. Like bringing it back in and um, really just kind of redeveloping and looking at what your purpose is. Most people aren't interested in that because it, they find it uh, intensely scary uh, to look at the deep dive process because they're uh, horribly fearful of what they might find. Austin, I think this is probably a good place to wrap up. I, I, he just he just wrapped this whole thing up for us and without even asking. Well, the best part is you started and ended with one thing, which I took from it was be selfish with your mental health and your family, right? Like that's basically the last few minutes we've talked about too, as well as like it. You they're inherently not selfish people, but in these two particular facets, be selfish and take care of it. I got to say that uh, one of the last uh, years of my career, I was having a conversation with the boss and we were down at the airport and he was like, you know, us working in this environment, this is about them. Our job is about serving the public. And I said, I disagree with you a hundred percent. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, this job is about me. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, boss, if I'm not a hundred percent, if I'm not feeling amazing, doing well, my mental health's intact, my family's there, my support system, I'm going to do a sh- terrible job with these folks if they need me. I need to be 100%. That's, that, that's not selfish if you think about it that way, right? Selfish is, is doing something because, you know, I want to feel good or it, it's interesting or exciting or something like that. But to want to be your best so you can give your best I think um, that's that's the best we can do right there is think about ourselves first. You know, I could not agree more that that concept right there uh, is powerful. And I hope the listeners actually hear that to embrace that enough to say I'm important. You know, I go back to, to something I said earlier, which is this distorted loyalty of sorts of, the, of feeling like you have to give everything of who you are and what you are, including your family to this profession. And the reality is it's still just a job, honorable, noble courageous endeavor um but it's still just a job and that self first self-ish is self-care victor thank you so much for coming on it's an honor to have you here if, if someone uh wanted to reach out to victor escota how how would they find you sure the name is uh well i'd just say that um first off it was an honor for me to be here with you guys and um you can always look me up on linkedin we can connect there it's probably a little slow if you want to you know, it might take me a week to get back to you if you want to message me there. My name is Victor Escoto, and that is E-S-C-O-T-O, and you can find me in LinkedIn. But I would say that if you're a first responder in the beautiful state of Arizona and you need help navigating 
any type of mental health um, or you need some resources, reach out to me. Um, I have a cell phone like everybody else. It's 602-451-5451. You could text me. Let me know who you are. And uh, we'll set up a time we can call and uh, we can just talk on the phone like we're talking here and figure out what direction we need to go. And I'd be glad to help you in any way I could possibly help you. Absolutely. Top notch resource, in my opinion. We've worked together for a few years and uh, heard nothing but amazing feedback from the people that you've worked with. And I can say that you are one of the best resources in the Arizona area. If uh, I can't do it, uh, we'll find someone that can and we'll get back with you. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's not just me. I've got a, a group of people behind me that are all uh, prior law enforcement firefighters. And, uh, you know, we care about the brotherhood, the sisterhood and everybody out there, you know, still humping a beat and uh, in a firehouse as difficult as his jobs can be. And we'd love to offer some support. Victor, thank you very much for coming on and uh, imparting your wisdom here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. We want to give a special shout out to our sponsors of this episode, Chateau Recovery and First Responder Trauma Counselors. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues, it addresses the why. Each of their trauma-trained and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the county to treat responders and veterans, in fact it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour, all-badges, all-uniforms, all-scrubs, educational experience helps you create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. FRTC's National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent licensed behavioral health clinicians, who teach from lived experience not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive, educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details go to their website 911overwatch.org or contact first responder trauma counselors at 970. 970- 222-4193, this could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.